Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Poem Crit 101. As always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist, and today we're going to talk about the topic that every intern loves to hate. What am I referring to? DKA, or diabetic ketoacidosis. I know it's kind of a drag to manage and no one really wants to go over it, but it's really important to have a good understanding about DKA because I can guarantee you, even if you don't become an intensivist in your uh, career, even as a hospitalist or any specialty, it's a good idea to have a handle on it because this uh, disease process will show up again and again. So I want to start off by briefly going over the pathophysiology of DKA with a quick segue into HHS, and then we'll jump right into how these patients present, certain lab values you have to watch out for, and then really the meat of today's topic is going to be about how we manage these patients. So a brief word on the pathophysiology of DKA. I think the best way to think about DKA is that it really is the clinical manifestation of the metabolic consequences of a few different things. And those things are insulin resistance and deficiency, too much glucagon, and the production of counter-regulatory hormones, like your catecholamines, in response to stressful triggers in those patients that have underlying diabetes. Now, HHS, or hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, is along a spectrum with DKA. It's a very similar pathophysiology, but there are some key differences that we have to make notes of. So while both diseases have hyperglycemia, you'll often see a lower glucose level in DKA patients as opposed to HHS. And DKA patients will also present earlier due to their symptoms, and they can actually excrete their glucose more effectively than those HHS patients. Now, with DKA, we're going to see a ketoacidosis, hence the name, but in HHS, there's still enough insulin present to prevent that lipolysis and thus the ketogenesis. And of course, along with the ketoacidosis we see in DKA, you'll also see that classic elevated anion gap metabolic acidosis, which may not be present with HHS. And again, just to reiterate, HHS, the sugars can go all the way up in the thousands. Well, you can have some DKA patients that may only come with a sugar as high as maybe just about 200. Now, when we think about how our DKA patients present, it's a pretty straightforward presentation. They can be confused, they'll usually look a little toxic, they may be nauseous, and they may even be tachypnic. And that would be that classic Kussmaul breathing, which is done in response to the metabolic acidosis that they're experiencing. Sometimes, you know, on board exams, they'll tell you that they have that fruity breath. Now remember, DK patients, a lot of them will come in complaining of some sort of nonspecific symptoms, malaise, fatigue, pain. I'll tell you, a lot of times they'll come in complaining of abdominal pain. The big thing here is that you cannot anchor the reason for them going to DKA on non-compliance. You have to make sure you do a thorough infectious workup or a workup for a trigger for why they could have gone into DKA. Along with doing that, you also want to check some labs, uh, specifically serum ketones as well as a beta-hydroxybutyrate because that's going to help us differentiate DKA from HHS. And then one specific electrolyte in particular you need to monitor would be sodium. And why is that important? Because oftentimes our DKA patients will come to the ER and that first set of lab values you're going to get, and you're going to see a marked hyponatremia. But before you panic, you have to remember that's actually a pseudo-hyponatremia because of the solute increase from that elevated glucose. 
So how do we correct that hyponatremia? How do we find out what the actual sodium value is? There's a very quick and easy uh, equation and the coefficient in the equation to calculate your actual sodium value is 1.6. To make it easy for you to calculate, I use two because let's be honest, all of us who went into medicine, we're not good at math. So the way that we do this is we take how many 100s the glucose level is above 100, multiply that by two, or if you're doing the actual equation, 1.6, and you take that value and add it to the serum sodium. So let me give you an example to really drive the point home. Your DK patient comes in with a uh, blood sugar level of 600, we'll say, and his initial sodium is 125. So you wanna find out what the actual sodium level is. So you're gonna say, okay, that 600 is five 100s above 100. I'm gonna take that five, multiply it by two, so five times two is 10, and then I'm gonna add that to the sodium, and I said the sodium is 125. So 125 plus 10 is 135. Okay, so we're actually not as bad off as we thought. What we thought was a significant hyponatremia, in fact, is on the lower end of normal. So that's why it's really important to calculate that corrected sodium. The other reason why it's really important is that things could go the other way. The first lab value you could get, the sodium could actually be 145. If you take uh, that same glucose level I mentioned in that example patient I gave you, and you added 10, well, in fact, the sodium is 155, and really the patient is dehydrated. And again, this then may change which IV fluid you use for resuscitation. So important thing to do is always calculate your corrected sodium in these patients. So let's now jump to treatment, which is gonna be really what I'm sure you guys are interested in. There's a few cornerstones of therapy when we talk about DKA, fluids, insulin, and then of course, like I mentioned before, treating that underlying trigger, for example, an infection. <clears throat> so let's talk about fluids first. So traditionally, we resuscitate these patients with normal saline. We usually start fluids at anywhere from 125 to 150 mils per hour. LR, lactated ringers, is another good option, especially if you're concerned about hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. Now, if you have someone who is dehydrated, like the example I mentioned earlier, where the sodium was um, already all the way up to 155, you could use half normal saline here. I would not advocate using something like a D5 drip, mostly because that's not really a great resuscitative fluid, plus you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Already you have someone who's on high sugars, or excuse me, who has high sugars, and now you're adding more problems to the mix. I would stick with something like a half normal saline until your sodium um, was in a little bit better uh, position. So the next step would be, of course, insulin. So we use a regular insulin drip and the nurses generally at all hospitals have a protocol on how to titrate the insulin down. And we check our glucose level levels hourly when um, they're on the insulin drip. The other labs that you wanna check are your renal panels every four hours. And while we talked about sodium earlier as being very important, potassium is also important because remember when they're on an insulin drip, your potassium level is going to drop. Now you can either replace potassium as the lab's result or put potassium in your IV fluid. Um, both uh, strategies are equivalent. I personally like to replace potassium as the lab's result because I know I get busy with my other critically ill patients and 
I may not be able to be keeping a track on what that potassium level is as closely as I would like if I had placed in the fluids, but either way is equivalent. Now, one point I want to make about fluids is what if you have a patient who's in DKA, but say has an EF of, I don't know, 15%, or maybe he's a dialysis patient. So these are those patients who really can't handle a whole lot of fluid. So a very unique situation, but more common than uh, we'd like to have happen. So these patients who may have a low EF who are on dialysis, they can still handle a little bit of fluid. You could probably do something like 50 mils per hour for about 24 hours while the insulin is doing what it needs to do. But if there is concern that they are overloaded or they're in pulmonary edema, you can just go ahead and use your insulin drip alone. Um, but be careful because generally our DK patients are dehydrated. So it may be worth trialing some fluids. If there is concern that they're overloaded, you know, that might be the situation where you would need to, you know, maybe put them on the ventilator and um, still trial some fluids so you can get them out of that dehydrated state. So we've got our, you know, DK patient on fluids. We've given them the insulin drip. The nurses are checking um, the glucose every hour. How do we know when we're ready for the next step, when we're ready to come off the insulin drip? So there's a couple things we have to do first. So the nurses are checking the glucose every hour. Once that sugar hits 250, we have to make a few changes. The first thing is, is that we have to change that fluid over and add D5 to it. Because while that patient's on the insulin drip, you don't want the blood sugar to drop precipitously. So you're going to add D5 to your maintenance fluid. You're going to keep your insulin drip going, but now you're going to start looking at your labs to help you decide, is that patient ready to transition to sub-Q insulin and stop the drip? And those labs that you're going to look at are going to be your anion gap and your bicarb. And what you're going to look for is two sets of a closed anion gap and that doesn't mean an anion gap that's on the upper limit of normal. That means an anion gap that is normal. Plus, you're going to have two normal bicarbs. Along with that, the patient should want to eat. Their nausea should be resolved. They should say, yeah, you know, I'd like a little something. Once those criteria have been met and the patient feels that they're ready to eat, you can go ahead and bridge um, your insulin drip. And what that means is that you'll start your sub-Q insulin but you're not going to stop the drip until two hours after that sub-Q dose has been given. And that's just in case that sub-Q dose is not enough. Now, how to figure out how much sub-Q to start? Again, a off-the-cuff sort of way to do it is to take how many units of insulin were given in the last 24 hours, cut that in half, and split that dose between morning and night. Once you've done that, then you can turn the insulin drip off two hours later, let the patient eat, advance their diet, you know, as they tolerate. And then you remember at that point, you're also going to have sliding scale insulin on, and you can use that to help adjust your sub-Q dose at that point. And that's pretty much it as far as management for a DKA patient goes. One uh, last point I want to make is that we talked about how DKA patients can have sugars as low as in the 200s. There is something called a excuse me, a euglycemic DKA, and there's a very classic uh, group of medications that are known to cause this. It's a question I always ask on rounds. For those of you who work with me, you know um, what I'm getting at. 
And that class of medications are the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, they are notorious uh, for causing this. So something to watch out for that just because the blood, blood glucose isn't all the way up in the 500s, but if they come in, you know, with a 180 or a 200 and they look like they're acidotic and they've been on an SGLT2 inhibitor, I would definitely think about treating them for a DKA. I hope this was a good review for everyone. DKA is really not as scary as it may seem at first, especially for any of you who are interns. It's a very algorithmic process and there's just a few tweaks you may have to make depending on the type of patient that you have. But I'm hoping that after listening to this, this will help make DKA really easy and you'll be able to manage uh, any DKA patient with your eyes closed. Thank you everyone for taking the time to listen and make sure to join me next time when we're going to talk about a case where, you know, every acronym in the book was involved. I'll give you a hint. HIV, TB, PCP, MAC, and HLH. Stay tuned. You can always follow me, follow me on PlumCrit101 on Instagram or email me at PlumCrit101 at gmail.com if you have any other questions. Until next time.